0: Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A-Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwozowski, and welcome to the show. In the past few years, what has loosely been called the modernist left has seen some revival. Whether coming out of the ultimate failures of the Occupy movement and its offshoots, dissatisfaction with moralistic lifestyle politics, or an attempt to analyze the current conundrum of a moribund but hegemonic capitalism, some have returned to the idea of the left as a modernizing force, progressive in the most literal sense of the word. Agree with their postulates or not, this broad current on today's left deserves a hearing, as it seriously grapples with everything from ecology, technology, technology to economics, and the left's strategic response to our unhappy contemporary situation. This week, I present interviews with authors of two recent books that fit squarely into this current. First, I speak with Nick Srinicek, who, along with Alex Williams, has written Inventing the Future, subtitled Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. Next, I speak with Lee Phillips, author of The More Colorful, Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts a defense of growth, progress, industry, and stuff. Here's my conversation with Nick Snicek. I want to talk more about the positive content rather than the critique in your and Alex's book, um, because it, in many ways I read it as a sort of spirited and serious invocation for, you know, as the title itself says, inventing the future, putting forward a vision. Uh, but before we do get to the future, maybe you could say in a few words what the two of you are setting yourselves against um, and what you mean by this great phrase, folk politics.
1: I mean, part of it has to do with sort of us being involved with the Occupy movement here in London, um, us being involved with a number of student protests here in London uh, and seeing a real sort of like surge in protests and momentum and passion and everything. Uh, but then seeing it fail again and again and again. Um, And you sort of look back, you look at the anti-war movement, you look at the anti-globalization movement, uh, and then you look at the Occupy movement and the sort of things that built up around it. Uh, And every one of them has been a failure as far as we're concerned, which is not to say they haven't had some marginal successes, uh, but broadly speaking, they have failed at what they've tried to be doing. So folk politics was sort of Alex and I's attempt to sort of think of what exactly has gone wrong? Why, despite millions of people wanting something different, wanting a better world, wanting things to change, uh, why do they keep failing? Uh, And so our argument became a matter of, well, they share a lot of the same tactics and they share a lot of the same strategic approaches to thinking how political change happens. And we started to realize that in certain ways, there's inbuilt limits to these tactics and these strategies. Uh, And so folk politics became a way of trying to pick out the aspects which have this inherent limit Uh, So why do we not talk about, say, horizontalism, for instance, uh, or anarchism as being just equivalent to folk politics? Uh, Well, the answer is, well, horizontalism and anarchism have numerous good aspects to them, but there's certain parts of them which sort of self constrain them, which limit them. Uh, and so folk politics was trying to name those parts without denouncing, say, horizontalism in total or anarchism in total, or localism in total.
0: yeah, and I, I think that was one of the valuable things in your book for me. I mean, there there is a f- there's a fair bit of critique, but but it's not dismissive. Um, and, and there's an understanding. And I think what what it's linked to in your case, too, is sort of an understanding of what are the structural conditions. Uh, and I think in some ways, I mean, you have a bit of a bit of a strong take on what's sort of what's going on in capitalism today that feeds into why sort of these are strategic failures. I don't know. Maybe you could talk about a bit about that, how today is different from the social democratic consensus that uh, ruled after the war.
1: I mean, our our sort of primary thesis that we try to put forth in the book about the nature of contemporary capitalism uh, is this argument about surplus populations, which was a sort of classic argument of Marxism and Marxists. And then it sort of gets forgotten after World War II. And you have this sort of movement towards, you know, full employment uh, as a political and a social and an economic goal uh, for the advanced capitalist countries. And so it becomes sort of perverse to talk about, well, surplus populations and mass unemployment uh, in an era where there's relatively good jobs for most people. um, Wages are increasing at the same level as productivity Uh, And everybody seems to be getting relatively better off. Today, it seems to be different. Today, our argument is that actually capitalism has reached a period where, you know, maybe it's a final period, maybe it's a transitory period, but currently capitalism is incapable of producing enough jobs for everybody, let alone enough good jobs for everybody. Uh, And so this is why the sort of thesis about surplus populations, the sort of excess glut of labor, um... Seems to us really important to make sense of what's going on in the world today. This then has sort of consequences for you know strategic and political action.
0: And then what, what concretely does this mean then? As you said, you have you know you, know, you have this fairly strong thesis about surplus populations. Um, so, for example, your proponents of a universal basic income and a few and a few other demands, and you and you subsume all of these under this provocative heading of of full unemployment. As a strategic demand, um, yeah, I thought I, I thought that was you know was a very interesting way of putting it, especially after this critique of of full employment as you know being no longer uh, possible.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, there's there's four different demands, and I think it's problematic to focus just on the universal basic income, which is something that everybody sort of picks up on. It gets sort of posited as being this magical solution to everything, and then if we just get Uh, some sort of basic income, Uh, all our problems will be solved. And I think that that's really a mistake. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's a very useful sort of policy. Uh, It has all sorts of knock-on effects that are really politically useful for the left. But it can't be something on its own. So that's why we talk about, well, you also have to be sort of creating incentives um, and possibilities to automate the worst jobs. Um, A lot of jobs which are now done by just incredibly cheap labor. So how do you sort of enable these sorts of workers to get political strength in order to have their jobs automated rather than continuing to be um, cheaper than machines? Uh, likewise, a reduction of the working week is a sort of um, modest step forward, which enables us to then build up more and more power again. Uh, and then also just a sort of change in cultural cultural imposition of the work ethic. Uh, I think getting rid of that would be a crucial way to sort of get people to accept um, full impl- full unemployment in a post-work world uh, as useful goals and as plausible goals. All
0: right, and, and it seems like the way to get there, what you argue for, is this sort of expansive sort of counter-hegemony, and it's it's not often that you read two leftist authors singing the praises of of Hayek and the Mont Pelerin Society. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've, I found this actually very, you know, one of the really more, more interesting arguments, and and a curious one. But how can socialists basically strive to create a new hegemony in this way that you know that say the neoliberals did, who you argue you know were actually going against the grain when they started? But you know this has to be a bit different for the left because the left isn't appealing to the already powerful, and, and it isn't appealing to those who do have the material means to help us institute uh, this new <laughs> this new hegemony.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's um. I mean, the Mont Pelerin Society is quite interesting as a historical example, uh, but there are sort of obvious limits for the left um, to just try and model itself after that. So like you mentioned, there's not um, the sort of people with material resources are unlikely to support a leftist Mont Pelerin. Um, you also don't have the elite sort of predisposed uh, to, being in, to being on board with the sort of leftist idea uh, of counter hegemony. Uh, and then you also have the sort of closed-in, elitist nature, uh, the Mont Pelerin Society, which is fine if you're sort of, you know, a neoliberal and you're happy to have military coups, um, dictatorships supporting your neoliberal policies. Um, having a closed-in elite think tank is pretty marginal compared to some of that. Uh, now, obviously, the left can't do any of that. Um, at least a sort of, you know, non-Stalinist left can't do that. Um, so the idea has to be, well, thinking about taking on a sort of long term strategic goal, which is what the Mont Pelerin society did exceptionally well. So over the course of decades, thinking about how all these sorts of different smaller movements can be fitted together, slotted together to be broadly consistent um, without, you know, struggling against each other, without, you know, shooting each other down or anything. Uh, and thinking about a sort of division of labor. Um, amongst different groups as well. So I think there's a sort of problematic aspect amongst some of the left to think that if we just get the right organizational form, the one right organizational form, uh, all our problems will be solved as well. I think actually we need to be thinking about a sort of political project involving a, a, a division of labor. So certain groups doing one thing, other groups developing, say, long-term policies, um, some people doing utopian um sort of large-scale thinking, uh, and others doing sort of more reactive protest work, on-the-ground sort of policy work, uh, and thinking about how how all these things can be slotted together. Now, there's there's one aspect which I think we don't really raise in the book, and I think this is sort of something I've been thinking about since then, is effectively how do you embody this sort of strategy which would unite all of these things together? Uh, And I think in the book, sort of what unites all these things together is the broad goal of a post-work world. Uh, So this idea that, well, um, the image of the future can be one way to unite uh, all these movements. I think actually though, you need to also be thinking about how does strategy get reflected upon, created, and then uh, sort of embodied. And sort of traditionally amongst the left, it would be the vanguard party who would just, you know, a small group of people hashing out strategy and then dictating it to everybody else uh, as to what to do. But I think if you reject that sort of idea of a vanguard party, you have to be thinking about, well, how does strategy, long-term, grand-scale uh, strategy, get embodied in a broader ecology of organizations and in a sort of democratic manner? Uh, and this is a sort of question I've been trying to grapple with recently. I don't have uh, an answer to it at the moment, but um, I think it's a sort of interesting question.
0: I think that is a, a key question. And it, and it also relates to one that I had when, when reading this, or, you know, finding the places where this is different uh, than just, say, the social democratic strategy or the one that's, that that seems to be implicitly present in a lot of, say, existing think tanks or this kind of social democratic world where it's, you know, if we just had the right ideas and could just put them across in the right way, we would solve things. You know, we we could deal with inequality. We could deal with all these things. Um, which seems to disregard, you know, power and class relations and and all of these things. So where is where are those in in where are those in your counter hegemonic strategy? Like, where's the link ups with with actual social power
1: for a sort of successful political project? I think what you've seen in the past, say, 10, 15 years amongst the left um, is a very good sort of naming of the problem, a naming of the enemy. Uh, whether it be the 1% or whether it be um, globalization or anything like that. We've been very good at picking out what the sort of problem might be and and mobilizing a large group of people around it. But at the same time, we don't don't have a sort of enticing alternative. Uh, And I think this is one thing that was really lacking in Occupy was to say, well, okay, inequality is bad. How do we then fix it? What's the alternative world that we want to see? And it sort of failed in that regard. And, you know, the sort of issues around trying to generate demands within Occupy Wall Street in particular, uh, sort of well-known. So I think you need to have, well, one, naming the enemy, but two, you also need this sort of enticing vision. Now, this is all still purely sort of ideational. It's still a matter of ideas. It's not a matter of sort of material forces yet. I think the sort of element of affect and desire involved in a desirable vision of the future is important, but then it also has to be played out in terms of um, a a social group to carry it out and B sort of points of leverage, which actually enable power to be changed. And this is sort of what we try to argue in the book is to say, well, the social group, I don't think class functions as an identity uh, and it's not going to function uh, as a a unifying identity in the way that it once did. Uh, And I think for a number of different reasons, I think a lot of that, I think it's quite problematic to be trying to bring that back. I think it's sort of a a lost cause in many ways. So we try to argue, well, a populist identity may be the way to go, to build a social group which is unified and has a sort of force in numbers and and quality. Um, And a populist identity doesn't mean a sort of lowest common denominator political project. Uh, Instead, it's a type of connection between people. Uh, so Ernesto Laclau's version, it's, you know, this logic of connection between people rather than being uh, a sort of content or a substance to an identity. And so it's, it's primarily about well creating a certain hegemonic idea that names the enemy and names the people and allows this sort of antagonism to be brought forth. Uh, so this is what gives a sort of unity to a social group. The other aspect, though, which is the crucial sort of one, which is um, the points of leverage. How even if you were to manage to bring together a social group that's relatively unified, that has an enticing vision of the future and that is named the enemy, how do you then actually still change things? And this is where points of leverage are absolutely necessary. Uh, And traditionally it was, you know, the workplace. Um, You go on strike and you impose costs upon the employer and eventually uh, one side has to give out. Either the employer gives out. Uh, or the workers give out because they're not getting paid. Uh, But one side wins, and it's a battle of force between the two. Uh, But the workplace was a point of leverage. Uh, And I think the challenge today, the sort of key political uh, transformational challenge, is to think about what might be the points of leverage nowadays. Because I don't think the workplace holds anymore, at least not in the the sort of same classic way it once did.
0: That was Nick Snicek, co-author with Alice Williams of inventing the future next my interview with lee phillips author of austerity ecology and the collapse porn addicts your book is full of um, very funny often quite barbed phrases and why don't we start with with one right from the title which i think gets at one of the main contradictions you really try to explore in the book and that's the phrase austerity ecology what is it, and what is it about strands of green thought that you claim make them antithetical, really, to traditional progressive and left concerns?
2: Well, if we're, if we're going around demanding that people consume less um, or that um, we, whoever this nameless we is, uh, are uh, we need to, to put a cap on growth and to live simply so that others may simply live. uh, uh, This this sort of set of of modest proposals of a sort of, um, hey, everybody, follow me, I promise you less. What I'm saying there is basically it is mathematically and socially identical to the austerity that is being imposed by people like David Cameron, uh, Angela Merkel, the European Union as a whole, uh, austerity that we see around the world, the sort of neoliberal retrenchment and cuts to not just social programs, but also uh, and crucially, the um, uh, keeping wages low um, and even to cut wages back. Because if we're saying that we uh, need to consume less, will the the same effect will happen if uh, you have a cut to your wages? If you had, if there's a cut to your, uh, to Spending on social programs because you'll have now have to spend more of your income on, say, healthcare or education or taking care of your aging parents or whatever it happens to be. So historically, we have on the on the left, we've always demanded that working people have more of the uh, the value that they produce in the day. I mean, without going down the sort of um, Marxist rabbit hole of of surplus value and 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 uh, and its extraction by by the bosses. In a more sort of basic language, you know, there's a difference between the value of what workers produce and what um and what they're paid. And we on the certainly the trade union left have always been trying to fight for workers to have a greater share of that, to have more and more of that, and ultimately to overthrow that system of a, of a theft.
0: I think one of the fundamental issues where you you know that flows through your whole book and that that really puts to the point, you know, puts puts your critique on the point is is the whole notion of of growth and the and the notion of limitations. And this seems to really be the kernel of what links so many of the disparate themes of the book. What's the central message here, and what's what's the place of growth in in a left in the left understanding of the world in the left politic?
2: This is essentially why I wrote the book. It was a concern about a uh, a growing um, support for the ideas of degrowth or limitations on growth and uh, you, as you're, you're right i mean there there's a whole long history of, of where that comes from, but it was a fairly minority position um, on the left in fact it, for most of the history of the left, they're really really um, hegemonic today, and the reason I think is because it just seems so self-evident. It's such an easy line that uh, people can grab a hold of. That uh, how can you ha- how can you have infinite growth on a finite planet? It's it sounds so sensible, but in fact it just doesn't describe humanity at all. And trying to get people to understand that is 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 sometimes quite complicated. Whereas the you know, finite planet, infinite growth. that just—it's so easy to 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 stick in your head. So what what I wanted to do was I wanted, I wanted to come uh, to develop a set of ideas that made it easier for people to understand why you can actually have counterintuitively, you can have infinite growth on a finite planet. And there's all sorts of mathematical discussions in there about concepts of boundedness and infinitude. But really, the core of it is just very simple in that. Uh, We aren't like any other species on the planet. We have the uh, unique capacity to invent new ways of doing things. So if it takes, let's say, um, 10 tons of steel to produce uh, 10 widgets uh, this year, we have the capacity to invent a technology that next year, maybe it takes five tons of steel to produce the same number of widgets. And then a year after that, maybe we can um, use, use less and less and less. There's a complicated uh, question about um, how about over overall growth, and it would be too and 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 the uh, uh, the Jevons uh, paradox, and I do go into that in the book, and I don't want to have an extended discussion of that right now. But basically, the the key uh, part of the argument uh, for me as a socialist is this is this has always been the possibility, but there's no guarantee that we do this, that we use less stuff to produce the same amount of stuff. Uh, the capitalists will continue to um, produce and produce and produce, uh, regardless of whether we have a new technology that allows us to use l- fewer raw materials to produce the same amount of stuff. The green left response is uh, that we just there, there's a fixed amount of uh, raw materials on the earth, and we can't go any further from that. And so what I'm offering people is... Um, whether you're a, a socialist, a democratic socialist, a social democrat or even a liberal, there are paths of more managed um, and um, there are paths out of climate change. There are paths out of uh, of, of uh, biodiversity loss and overfishing and many of our envir- very real environmental problems, but without having to reject growth. Um, What we need is socialism. What we need is social democracy. We need regulation. We need public sector um, intervention.
0: Is there a risk there on the other side of falling into uh, a kind of, you know, technology fetishism um, with this strong call for modernity, you know, especially with we normally associate sort of technology boosterism with, you know, Silicon Valley, or in terms of climate change, and perhaps more worryingly, those who you know claim it's just a matter of some future techno fixes—not to worry—we'll find a way to shove it all under the carpet, all the carbon, whatever. What distinguishes, um, you know, your view from this kind of?
2: Um, There are a handful of people who've been critical of, of of what I've been writing, who seem to suggest that my argument is a a celebration of technology or uh, an argument for techno fixes. And I'm very clear in the book that the, uh, the argument is not that um, technology will save us. In fact, I lay out a sort of a triptych of, of arguments. The green left um, says uh, technology won't save us. Uh, we need to go back to the land. We need to uh, turn off the machine. The Silicon Valley types, if you will, the capitalists, uh, captains of industry say, hey, you know, technology has always saved us in the past. Don't worry about it. Um, uh, we may not have the technology to solve these issues at the moment, but don't worry, we will. Uh, so we don't need to worry about this. And, but then the socialist has a di- different response to both of these positions. It's uh, uh, The socialist perspective is so long as we, are, uh, we regulate carefully, so long as we, uh, we manage the, and plan the economy carefully, we can make sure that when new technologies come come online that allow us to replace other resources or to use less resources, fewer resources, sorry, uh, to produce the same uh, same quantity of goods, uh, then we can continue to move forward. So it's it's a managed economy, a planned economy approach rather than and, rather than a, a pro technology one. This is the crucial distinction. Is The argument is not that technology will save us, but it is against the idea that technology cannot play any role. Um, It is as uh, in the same way that if we switched uh, switched tracks and talked about uh, women's liberation, uh, it is absolutely the case that there could not have been and cannot be uh, true women's liberation without a radical overhaul of the the relations uh, in society. But we cannot avoid having a conversation about the role of the washing machine in in women's liberation, about the role of the pill in women's liberation, or about the role of the bicycle. Um, The crucial thing here is not to throw out uh, technology um, uh, and uh, throw up your hands and say, you know, uh, it can't play any role. If anything, um, in many respects, I want people to pay more of an attention to the relations of production rather than... Um, technology, what we used, you know, part of what we used to call the, the forces of production. Um, a, a good example I give in the book is around genetic modification. If we eliminated um, genetic modification, uh, GMOs tomorrow, Cargill, Monsanto, uh, Arthur Daniels Midland, the, the big agribusiness companies, they would still be engaged in all sorts of the horrible uh, aggressive patent protection Um and 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 uh, uh, brutal um, practices that agribusiness has always done in all sorts of other areas, and so we're by focusing on the technology of uh, genetic modification, which, by the way, all uh, you know, there, there's as much of a scientific consensus on the safety of, of genetic modification as there is a scientific consensus on on the reality of anthropo- anthropogenic global warming. If we focus too uh, focus entirely on the, on the, the technology of genetic genetic modification, and avoid the relations of production that is in this case aggressive patent protection, we're letting the bastards off the hook. Um, it's a fundamentally it's it's a it's a retreat from ideas about economics. Um, the the green left has lots of discourse around values and and uh, um, sort of modest, uh, modest ways to live. And these are all very romantic ideas. But somehow discussions of uh, brass tacks discussions of, about economics and uh, has, has sort of retreated from the left or been left out of, of, of left discussion. And part of uh, the book that the, part of the, the reason I wrote the book and part of the reason I'm writing the, the other book with you at the moment, uh, Michal, is, is to try to revive the the centrality of of these ideas about economics rather than more romantic ideas, however important those can be as well.
0: That was Lee Phillips, author of Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in a few weeks.